this is kind of a precarious time to be recording the podcast. Yeah, I was going to say we should maybe wait until the final decision gets dropped. Yeah, they've released five yeah. now. Or no, they've, they've released, released four. There's going to be a fifth. Well, this will make a very suspenseful cold open if we get a Dobbs opinion while we're all standing by before recording the podcast. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. I hope everyone had a good long weekend for Juneteenth. What would you tell a pollster if they asked you if you consider yourself good or evil or just neutral? How about if they asked you if you are lawful or chaotic or maybe a mix between the two? Well, one pollster asked Americans these questions to try to arrange them into nine categories based on a popular meme from Dungeons and Dragons. And today, we're going to ask if this was a good or bad use of polling. We're also going to assess the country's new congressional maps now that the latest redistricting cycle is just about over. The maps haven't turned out as fair as it once seemed they would. And we'll also discuss the latest results of our collaboration with Ipsos Polling, We're tracking the most important issues in the run-up to the midterms and digging a little deeper to find out what Americans know or think about those issues. We've got some updates on how they view political extremism and crime and gun violence in the latest data. Here with me to discuss it all is politics editor Sarah Frostenson. Hello, Sarah. Hey, y'all. Happy Tuesday. How's it going? Good, good. The week feels really off when we have Monday off, but certainly not complaining. No. Anyway, also with us is elections analyst Nathaniel Rakich. Hey, Nathaniel. Hey, Galen. Happy Election Day. Happy Election Day. We're doing things a little bit differently this week, as folks will probably realize when they're listening to this podcast. Uh, If you're listening to this on Wednesday, Election Day already happened. We're recording on Tuesday, nonetheless, because we usually kick off the week with a podcast. So we're going to do that this week. We will not have a late night or early morning reaction podcast. I mean, no disrespect to Virginia, which is the only state that is having its regularly scheduled primary this week. It's just, uh, it's a little too complicated, and I am sure that people can follow our live blog and get all of the information they need about Virginia on our live blog. So definitely make sure to tune into that, but we will only have another podcast this week if there is a significant ruling from the Supreme Court, and you never know, certainly could happen. Anyway, also here with us is Virginia native elections analyst Jeffrey Skelly. How's it going, Jeffrey? Well, you know, I was doing great until I discovered we're not doing a reaction pod since, you know, there's for Virginia. I mean, it's not like you know, there's so many races of interest, you know, um, not really. OK, give us the like 90 second, 60 second version of what we should care about in Virginia in this primary uh, week. Well, I mean, there's there's basically two House seats that are really interesting in Virginia, uh, the 2nd Congressional District and the 7th Congressional District. And uh, in both cases, there's uh, Republican primaries what's interesting. In the 2nd District, it probably will be the state senator, Jen Kiggins, who will face Democratic incumbent Elaine Luria. So Kiggins will probably win uh, the Republican primary there. And then the Republican primary in the 7th District, uh, the winner will, will face Abigail Spanberger, the Democratic incumbent, that is much more wide open. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what, what pans out there. So yeah, there's no statewide race of interest in Virginia. So I'm sure that's part of the reason why it's a little down the totem pole. 
are both of those congressional districts, you know, flippable targets for Republicans this fall? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, if it's a red wave environment, those are two seats that could definitely, I don't know about game over, but could definitely flip. Yeah. All right. Well, we will keep an eye on those if anything crazy happens. And of course, we will always have a podcast next week and we can update folks. But let's move on to our good use or bad use of polling today, which is a little bit different. So people who are familiar with either Dungeons and Dragons or internet memes have likely seen these nine square grids that categorize things or people on two spectrums, from lawful to chaotic and from good to evil. For the record, I don't know anything about Dungeons and Dragons, so if you are likewise unfamiliar, still follow along. This is interesting stuff for the sake of understanding Americans. Anyway, YouGov tried to categorize Americans on this grid by asking them those two questions. First, do you identify as good, neutral, or evil? 67% said they identify as good, 26% said neutral, and 1% said evil. Next, they asked Americans, do you more identify with honor, trustworthiness, obedience to authority and reliability, or do you more identify with freedom, adaptability, and flexibility? Or third option, a mix between the two. The result was 32% of Americans identified as lawful, 20% as chaotic, 42% as neutral. Then, of course, they sorted Americans into the nine categories based on those two questions. And as you can tell, the most common was neutral good, then lawful good, then double neutral, and so on. We will dig into more of the results as we discuss. But just for starters, is this a good or bad use of polling? And... I am going to ask you guys, who is the biggest Dungeons and Dragons fan here? And whoever that is can kick us off. I'm going to guess it's Sarah. Wow. I have played before. <laughs> um, Nailed so I it. guess that's one. <laughs> so wait, does that mean Nathaniel, I, Jeffrey? I played Galen? once and wasn't super into it. I'm sorry. I know I have to hand in my nerd card now. I don't want to be rude, but I'm kind of surprised by that. I know. I, no, I, I kind of I, thought I, that you I'm, were a D&D Absolutely. Player. I think everybody would have pegged me as a D&D. Or I am a big board game fan, but this one was a little abstract for me. Yeah, I'm actually okay. really into board games and have played lots of ridiculously sort of nerdy in-depth board games. Um, shout out to Twilight Imperium. Uh, that'll be fun for like 10 listeners. Um, but I never <laughs> played Dungeons and Dragons, not once in my life, okay. Uh, interestingly. Okay. I have never, and like, honestly, when I was in middle school and high school, there was a pretty strong stigma against it. So I think I never, it's like, you know, you look back on those days and you're like, that's stupid. Let people do whatever the hell they want. But uh, I think I never even considered playing because it got such a bad rap, you know, in the late 90s and early 2000s. Anyway, Sarah, are you the winner of this poll? I mean, I guess like begrudgingly by default. <laughs> I wouldn't say like I'm a big, big fan. I also like board games and did not much care for like the role playing um, aspect of D&D. But, you know, I gave it my best shot, tried to be an evil character. Mm. Um, You're one of the 1%. <laughs> um, yeah. So on this note, I think this is a terrible use of polling. Um, a 20,000 plus person survey for this? Are you kidding me? Um, and so on the one hand, it's like, is this a glorified Myers-Briggs test? And we're like learning, you know, a little bit about different Americans' personalities and how that maps onto politics. 
Like, not not really. Um, the persona you take on in a game doesn't necessarily tell me anything about who you are in real life. I realize YouGov did not ask the questions around kind of like, you know, an idealized version of yourself. But I just don't see how this is like terribly reflective of how people move throughout move throughout the world. Wait, I'm I'm a little confused here because I'm pretty sure that YouGov, and I know this from looking at the poll, YouGov didn't say, you know, this is based on Dungeons and Dragons. If you were playing sure. Dungeons and Dragons, how would you identify? They just straight up asked Americans, are you good or evil? <laughs> so understanding that, do you still think it's a bad use of polling? And if so, why? I So good and evil is such a black and white way to put it. I think people are a little bit more evil context dependent. I mean, look around you in terms Whoa. of where American society is right now. This whole idea Whoa. that 32% of Americans identified as lawful. Okay, guys. I mean, I don't think that's currently <laughs> happening. Um, so yeah, no, I did not find this because yeah, if like I'm taking a poll, am I going to say I'm good versus bad? Sure, I'm going to say I'm good. But like, what does that tell me? Okay, I, there's a lot that I want to dig into, but I'm going to let Jeffrey and Nathaniel weigh sure. in on the goodness or badness. Hey, black and white, speaking of uh, of this <laughs> poll, Jeffrey, what did you think? Well, I, I also agree that it's a bad use of polling. It, it sort of strikes me that this also might, this might be like the ultimate example of like social desirability bias, right? It's like, oh, of course I'm good. And at worst neutral or whatever, like <laughs> in 1% answered evil. Um, which just is so out of line with reality, you know, human nature and whatnot that, it, you know, that that finding in and of itself was problematic. And actually, it strikes me as interesting that they tried to get it sort of chaotic and, and things like that and uh, with with other forms of questions. But they didn't try to do that with good and evil. And I feel like they could have tried to have something like that. Yeah, like pollsters have, okay. this, have a whole way of like asking basically is are you racist without asking are you racist they have these like kind of questions that get at the question of racial animus and i feel like you could have come up with some questions like that for you know are you good or evil you know you could ask like you know if the only way to save your you know your dying in childbirth wife were to embrace the dark side of some you know mythical religion and create a totalitarian regime throughout the galaxy would you do it and you know, or a Faustian people, bargain or something, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Something. Some people, some people might say oh yes to that God. more than one percent. And uh, you know, I don't know. I feel like we can all agree that Darth Vader is uh, pretty evil. Although maybe at the end he he redeemed himself. But I digress. Um, yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I I agree with Jeffrey. Okay, so you are all buying in to the idea that people are good and evil. Your critique of this poll is just more that more people should have responded that they're evil. That strikes me as kind of odd. Like, I don't really think of people as good or evil in those kind of like black and white terms. People are complicated. And I would say, if asked, this is a bad use of polling because it's an unanswerable question, not because like there's a social desirability bias and more Americans are actually evil. Like, I don't think of, of Americans as like evil, basically like almost any Americans as evil. That's fair, Galen. I think there's something to, I mean, this is getting way, we are going way, you know, above our pay grade here, but I think there's something to like the, the philosophy the, with yeah. the 538 right. <laughs> team. Um, I think there's probably something to that. The, like, you know, the cliche that 
a small number of people are, you know, fundamentally really good moral people and a small number of people are fundamentally really bad moral people. And I do think those people exist personally, but also I think that like the biggest group is these people in the middle that like, given the right circumstances, you might, you know, do something illegal or do something quote unquote evil, um, you know, steal money or something like that. You know, I think a larger percentage than most of us would like to admit would, would do something like that, but also probably in most situations, do you know follow the law and and the you know the laws of of god and men okay so i guess to ground us back in numbers like if we wanted to actually ask that question and ascertain like what percentage of people in society are truly good people what percentage of people in society are reliably evil and what percentage are in that murky middle where under the right circumstances they're good under the right circumstances they're bad but like are the definition of humans are complicated how would we ascertain that? Like, is there a polling design that we could do? I mean, again, I, I bet there is. You know, I'm not an expert in survey design, so I defer to someone, you know, else who's actually written polling questions. But like, I feel like you could ask something like, you know, like, isn't like a like classic example, would you embezzle money from your company if, you know, they were terrible and, you know, you could be guaranteed that no, you know, no one would find out and you wouldn't be punished or something like that. You could ask a question like that. And there would still be some social desirability bias, I think, in that those answers, but I, I'm sure that more than 1% of people would would respond, yes, I would steal money yeah, in that situation. Jeffrey and Sarah, I know you all have been working with Ipsos to design surveys asking Americans about what they care about, which were highly related to, surveys to this. Uh, <laughs> dig into later on in this podcast. Do you have thoughts on how you would ask Americans to ascertain their true moral nature? I think like there could be some fun things involving sort of the world we live in today. It's like, do you do you post comments on news sites? Evil. <laughs> you are an evil person. <laughs> Tough, you, no, it's like, you know, <laughs> like, you know, people who sort of have like a trolly nature to themselves, like within the context, especially of what we're trying to do here. Like, I think they might uh, maybe they lean evil. I mean, you know, to, to the point we were saying, there's a lot of gray here. You're calling trolls evil, Jeffrey? You can't do 538 dirty like that. <laughs> oh, I, I will. I will. Um, no, you know, there's a lot of gray. It's mostly gray out there, but maybe someone leans, you know, to, to borrow, you know, the ratings for, for like house races or Senate races, you know, you're a little lean evil, a little lean good. <laughs> likely evil. Uh, likely good, good. Likely evil. <laughs> yeah. Okay. More <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. So actually, uh, Galen, Jonathan Haidt, who is a professor now at NYU, did try to do this in a 2012 book, The Righteous Mind. And so it was looking at morality and why Republicans' views of that is different than Democrats and why, you know, we often are quick to dismiss the other side of it. And essentially, it was finding like, you know, six different things that kind of motivate how you view the world, what you think of as good as bad. Lawfulness, I think, was one component of it. He didn't call it that. But how that oftentimes will activate more of a conservative mindset than a democratic one and kind of talking about some of the nuances there. That I feel like, you know, I learned something that was an interesting way in which, you know, people think about obligation differently. Sometimes that's viewed by partisanship. This poll isn't really getting at that. Um, as much as it is kind of just a feel-good personality quiz in some way. Yeah, so to that point, they did try to map political views onto these nine alignments. 
not enough survey respondents said that they were evil to apply um, any political views to evil people, but they did have results for good and neutral people. And so here they are. Again, this is the survey included 24,000 people. And so they had a big enough sample to sort of map these views onto it. So lawful good, which is they identify as lawful on one axis and good on the other axis. The attitude about politics that is most disproportionately true for those people is, I am proud to be an American. Neutral good is, I feel safe in my community. Chaotic good is, drug laws do more harm than the drugs themselves. Lawful neutral as stereotypes about other groups are usually true. True neutral, I find it difficult to talk to my local police officers. Then chaotic neutral, uh, this is the furthest, you know, since we didn't have evil, this is the furthest away from, you know, good lawful you can get. Uh, drug laws do more harm than the drugs themselves. So that's, again. Now, we're going to move on to top issues disproportionately associated with these groups. Lawful good, top issue, evolution, more likely to believe in the biblical account. Neutral good, voter laws, more likely to be concerned about disenfranchisement. Chaotic good, the economy. Great, fantastic. Lawful neutral, child punishment, more likely to support parental right to spank. Um, okay. True neutral, racial profiling more likely to oppose by law enforcement. And then chaotic neutral top issue is surveillance, more likely to oppose use by government. I guess those are maybe our like libertarian friends out there. Uh, is this a good or bad use of polling? I think it's a lot more interesting. This kind of, you know, Sarah, you brought like actual knowledge and research to this question, which I think is unfair. But uh, it kind of goes along with what, what you said, you know, which is that like Republicans are, you know, like clearly the the like lawful good um, category is kind of predominantly Republican and like seems like, you know, particularly like, you know, this like religious right um, strain. And, and, and like that makes sense. You know, you think about, you know, people who are religious are probably, you know, they, they follow a strict moral code in terms of being lawful. They're, they're also, you know, good people. They consider themselves to be good people because they, you know, are, are good Christians and, and follow the 10 commandments or, or I suppose whatever religion it is. But I think in the United States, it's mostly Christianity. Whereas, you know, you do think about what was it, the, the chaotic good, um, people, which maybe, you could think of them as like they're more hippy dippy, you know. They they are opposed like drug laws, and you know they're more like iconoclastic. You know, tend to go against the establishment. So in that sense, they are chaotic, but they still consider themselves good. Obviously, does anyone else want to weigh in here? Because I think this is like a worse use of polling than even the original use of polling. How did they get the issues like child punishment? Okay, what? this is my issue: is that this is not how each of these ranked their top issue. This is just disproportionately to the other groups. And so it ultimately uh. ends up making Americans look like far more divided and discordant than they actually are. Like for all of these groups, their top issue is probably the economy. And for all of these groups, you know, their attitude about politics is probably like, I don't like politics. However, you know, this is like those state maps where it's like, okay, everyone's most common meal is probably just I don't know, turkey on Thanksgiving. 
But it's like when you do it disproportionately, you find out that like Californians eat macaroni and cheese or whatever the hell it is. So I think it just like accentuates divides where the real lesson about who Americans are is they're not good or evil. They're people. They're not lawful or chaotic. They're neutral. They're sometimes lawful. They're sometimes chaotic. And they care about the economy and they don't like politics. But you would like never get that message from looking at this data, even though while it's not purely true, like, yes, we discussed that there are nuances in there. It is the overarching message about who Americans are, I would say. I mean, you have a poll where you're trying to, to use answers and the entire bottom row, you can't say anything because the sample size is too small. It seems like kind of a fundamental problem. <laughs> so final question here before we move on to um, the real diligent work of redistricting and an actual issue poll. Um, if you were asked this question, how would you answer? I am definitely lawful good. Oh, you're lawful good. Okay. Nathaniel, uh, do you want to tell us more about that? Well, Galen, I'm a good person. I'm not an evil person. I am like, you know, 99% of Americans apparently and not being evil. Um, but no, I'm also like, I'm definitely like a rule follower. I'm, I'm a pretty straight shooter. So, you know, yeah, I think I, I obey the rules. Sarah? I think I'm chaotic neutral. Chaotic neutral. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, spice of life, you know, all this lawful. Uh, that was another interesting point in the quiz was that apparently women disproportionately uh, identified as lawful and men were chaotic. Obviously, the chaotic attributes are more fun, freedom, adaptability, flexibility. Yeah. You know, that's the lifestyle we all want, right? Um, that's and feminism, neutral, Sarah, you, is a chaotic that's feminism, woman. That's right. You know what that's they right. say, well-behaved right. women rarely make history. <laughs> indeed, indeed. You know, the chaotic neutral ones, that's where it's at. Um, yeah, and the neutral, you know, I think the good evil, it's too binary. We're all a bit more in the middle. So that's why I put myself at neutral. Yeah, I don't really. Uh, man, I have no idea. Uh, Jeff refuses to play this, this is game. making Jeffrey uncomfortable. <laughs> no, I guess. <laughs> no, no, That's I, the right answer. Honestly, <laughs> I, I suspect that something like lawful neutral, because I am a bit of a rule follower, but... I don't know if I would go with good, like all the way there. Um, so let's just go with lawful neutral. Child punishment really matters to you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it really matters to Jeffrey's you know, uh, If I have children, I want to be able to spank them, obviously. You know? <laughs> That's right. Right. Um, and Galen? So I guess I have to answer this now. Yeah. Um, oh, yes. Definitely chaotic, without a doubt. But like good, evil, neutral. I guess given everything I've said, I have to say neutral aspire to do good but oftentimes don't succeed um and so i guess that means neutral but i'm like aspirationally good but also like you're human if any good friends are listening you know <laughs> you know that i fail sometimes um <laughs> hi dad as a listener and gra my grandmother listens to this podcast hi martha anyway uh that's that honestly okay even though i said the poll went from bad to worse I got to say, this was a fun conversation. Yeah, it was. So I, I will defend the poll at least. In like, totality. It was, it was a fun use of polling. I'm glad they did it, even though like as long as we can all agree, it like practically means nothing and it's just purely for fun. <laughs> I'm totally on board with this. 
I'd feel that way if it wasn't 24,000 people. Like, that's such a large sample. I'm pretty, I'm like this. 90% sure that's not like they just film, like, did this poll just for that. I think they just tacked it on to their normal, yeah. like, yeah. That's true. The panel. Yeah. 100% they did not yeah. fund okay. a 24,000 person Dungeons and Dragons. Poll. I hope, I hope not, because, you know, they might have wanted to think about it a little more if they couldn't get a sample size for three of the category, nine categories. All right. With that, let's have a little bit less fun and talk about finalized congressional maps. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Halfway through the primary season, after a delayed census and endless political and legal spats, we are finally able to declare the 2020-2022 redistricting cycle as over. No, it'll never be over, Galen. an asterisk, because, yes, as Nathaniel, you are indicating, there will be legal fights over the maps that extend into future election cycles. But as of right now, we have a near-complete picture of what America's House districts will look like for these upcoming midterms and probably in large part for the next 10 years. Of course, as we said, there will still be changes. This cycle saw the establishment of more independent redistricting commissions than ever before, but also a record low number of competitive districts. And maps that once seemed like they wouldn't favor either Democrats or Republicans now seem to clearly favor Republicans. So, Nathaniel, you have been leading us heroically through the redistricting tracking process. Uh, if folks haven't checked out the maps on the 538.com website, they absolutely should. You can see the changes in every state in the country and compare old maps with new maps. You can see the racial and ethnic breakdown of all of the different congressional districts. It's fantastic. But Nathaniel, how did we go from a picture where we had, you know, more independent redistricting commissions that you would think might create sort of like fair maps to a situation where now it's clear that Republicans have an advantage? Yeah. So we were at a point in like it was like February or March where Democrats had been kind of surprisingly aggressive in gerrymandering their map in New York, I think, as a prime example. And Republicans either hadn't been as aggressive as some had thought, or courts were really starting to step in and say, no, Republicans, you can't do that gerrymandering. So, for example, um, the Republican-drawn map and maps, plural, were thrown out in North Carolina. Also, in Ohio, um, their first attempt was thrown out. Um, and so, you know, it looked like the the kind of overall national bias of the U.S. House um, toward Republicans, which we've talked about extensively on this podcast on 538, was going to roughly equalize where neither party had an advantage in the House. But then what happened was that basically the, the party's lux turned. Um, so Democrats started getting hit by a bunch of um, court decisions that overturned their gerrymanders. So um, especially in uh, New York, 
that map got overturned, um, but also in some kind of less consequential cases, like in Kansas, there was a mildly surprising case where there was actually a Republican drawn map, but um, Democrats tried to overturn it. And it seemed like they had a good shot because the Kansas Supreme Court is actually a majority of Democratic appointees, but the court actually kept the Republican map in place. Um, and then at the same token, um, honestly, Ron DeSantis uh, is the Republican MVP here. Um, he pushed through a lot of opposition, both from Democrats and Republicans, to get basically the maximum possible Republican gerrymander in Florida. And, and that, you know, basically gave them uh, Republicans like four seats by itself. And because overall we're talking about a fairly small number of seats, even when Democrats, quote unquote, had the advantage, um, you know, they were only, I think, gaining like 11 seats or something like that. Um, so a swing like, you know, Florida um, or New York, um, you know, which are worth just like three or four seats can can add up to a lot. So now we're in a situation where basically we're at the status quo, the, the pre-2021 status quo with the maps, which is that Republicans have a um, mild but potentially significant uh, advantage in the House. Can you put numbers to that advantage? Like how many seats pro-Republican is the national picture on the whole? Yeah. So 208 congressional districts are what we would say like leaning Republican. That's a 538 partisan lean of R plus five or redder um, versus 187 districts that are kind of leaning Democratic. That's D plus five or bluer. If you were to throw in the, the swing seats and, you know, say, Every seat that's righter than the country, every seat that's left of the country, it would be Republicans 225 seats and Democrats 210. Um, so, you know, 218 is majority in the House, of course. So that's certainly not a, a insurmountable uh, bias for for Democrats, but it certainly gives Republicans an advantage. And I just want to say we haven't really been tracking state legislative redistricting, but which is ultimately still very important for you know state law. Do we have a sense of just how biased those maps are? Yeah, we did an article on this um, a couple of months ago. Um, some states hadn't finished their maps, but um, but several had. And I think the biggest story, both uh, in the congressional level and on the state legislative level, is just a lack of competition. You've seen the number of competitive seats, congressional seats, decline by six nationally. Um, so, you know, competition is taking a hit there. State legislatures, too, a lot of states that you would expect the legislature to, to be competitive um, because, like, the state is competitive, swing seats, uh, swing states and stuff like that. They just aren't. So um, the number of competitive state legislative chambers is even smaller than the number of swing seat states, which is already pretty small. But that said, actually, some legislatures like I'm thinking of like Michigan, which is a state that had a new independent commission um, this year, their legislature got significantly more fair and now it's actually competitive for the first time. Um, Pennsylvania is in a similar boat. Um, so there are some sources of optimism on the legislative level. Sarah and Jeffrey, I'm curious, you know, the root of all of this redistricting is ultimately the census. How does this end result all this time, you know, we've been talking about the census, we've been talking about redistricting for two years at this point. Do these new maps, these new districts, reflect what you would have thought, given the information that we learned from the census? One thing that I think is really surprising from this batch of maps, and something ultimately the Supreme Court is going to decide next, no well, they'll hear the case next November, it'll probably then fall till next June. But is this idea that a lot of states, um, in particular Alabama and Louisiana, 
did not draw a second district that was eligible based on the census for black voters in the state. And that goes to the Voting Rights Act. And as we know that, you know, that act has kind of been winnowed out by the Roberts Court over the years and reduced in terms of its power. But one thing that is still enshrined in the Voting Rights Act is that, you know, members of a state who identify with a certain racial group have the right to representation if it meets a certain threshold. And in both Louisiana and Alabama and Florida, I believe it met this threshold. As Nathaniel was talking about earlier, you know, DeSantis obviously drew a map purposefully that excluded some black representation in the state. That one probably is a bit more clear cut than the Alabama and Louisiana situation, which is this question of there is enough for a second district the legislatures there did not draw that, but like, will they be required to under the Voting Rights Act? And how will the Supreme Court rule on that? And that was one thing I thought was really interesting. We saw this in Texas as well, even though there was a surge in the Latino population there that helped Texas gain another seat, there wasn't an additional Latino district drawn in the state. And I think for me, that was kind of one of the more surprising components of where the census data was and like where the maps ended up. You know, we're not in the business of making Supreme Court predictions, but does anyone have a sense of where that law is headed in terms of whether the Supreme Court will continue to compel either majority, minority, or minority opportunity districts? Um, you know, for some broader context here, we've talked about these types of districts on the podcast in the past. We did the whole gerrymandering project where we zoomed in on all of the intricacies of how that law is applied and where it's applied and things like that. But the general sort of view behind it is in a state where there's racially polarized voting, meaning that usually the majority ethnic or racial group, white people, you can sort of prove that they aren't voting for black candidates or the candidates that the black or Hispanic or Asian community prefer. Then you can draw these majority minority districts or minority opportunity districts that help racial or ethnic minorities elect the candidates of their choice in an environment where they might not have otherwise been able to. And so these districts end up looking pretty funky sometimes because they're purposefully drawing, you know, like ethnic or racial groups together. And people on both sides of the aisle actually have like fraught feelings about this practice. And, you know, the Supreme Court has even indicated when it's upheld the practice that like, hey, it's not ideal that we sort of racially segregate people through districts. But because we don't live in an ideal world, it's something that we have to do to make sure that we can increase fairness. You know, that has been sort of the the position of the court in the past on this. Is there reason to believe that that will change? I mean, I think the direction of things is leaving more up to the states. And there's obviously there's one of the things that will be really important to watch that relates to this question is whether or not the Supreme Court takes up a case dealing with this, it's like the independent state legislature doctrine and essentially would give the state legislatures primacy over basically everything to do with elections. So state courts, even like North Carolina, like the democratic leaning state court overruled the state legislature's uh, Republican leaning map to draw uh, a replacement. And you could have a situation where that would not be permissible anymore, essentially. Um, And that could also threaten uh, independent redistricting commissions. So, you know, a state like Michigan or a state like Arizona, those maps can be thrown out and the state legislatures would draw replacements. If, if you know, if that came to pass, that that was uh, basically accepted by the, the Supreme Court and uh, that state legislatures have this primacy. Um, so that to me is like a related topic to this, because if you sort of 
throw out, you know, if you if you continue to whittle down the Voting Rights Act and then you leave more up to the state legislatures, you know, state legislatures are going to gerrymander. That's what they do. So to me, that's like a really important aspect of this uh, looking ahead. Yeah. It's also notable that they'll take this case up the same time that they're taking one on affirmative action. And so given the court's right word, lean, um, there's, there's a understandable concern, I think, now that they would be perhaps willing to overturn precedent on what this had previously been. All right. Well, we will continue tracking any legal cases that end up changing the maps. And I should say here that, in fact, Louisiana is the single state that still does not have an approved map because of this conflict that we've been talking about. Uh, we will see. It seems unlikely that the proposed maps will change very much, as in it seems unlikely that there will be a second uh, majority-minority district in Louisiana for these midterms. But of course, the Supreme Court will deal with that in the future, and we will talk about it when they do. But let's talk about the biggest political issues Americans are thinking about. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. The latest installment of 538's collaboration with Ipsos Polling is published. In the run-up to the midterms, we're asking Americans about the issues that are most important to them and their knowledge about those issues. We're digging a little bit deeper. Last month, we talked about the number one issue on Americans' minds, which was inflation. We asked folks who and what they think is responsible for inflation and how it can be resolved. This month, we asked Americans about political extremism and polarization. That was the second most important issue in the first Ipsos poll we conducted, which is why we wanted to dig a little deeper into how Americans were thinking about that. However, in this most recent poll, crime and gun violence dislodged political extremism for the number two spot. So let's talk about what we learned. Jeffrey, you have been spearheading this. So what do we mean when we say political extremism and polarization? Or more to the point, what do Americans mean now that we've asked them? I think we can connect it, the idea of concern about polarization and extremism in our politics, to maybe some other polling that shows shows sort of a broader concern about government leadership, institutions, how the government is functioning. Um, and, you know, I think it's interesting because this does seem to be a more recent development, um, at least like a heightened awareness, a heightened concern about this. Um, because if you look back, I actually took a look at Gallup's most important problem question dating back to like the early 2000s. And the percentage of people who would mention concern about like the government functioning and being worried about poor governmental leadership uh, was pretty small. You know, it'd be like single digit. But in recent years, it sometimes has been as high as like 25% in that kind of range. Um, so it is clearly ticked up in recent years. And so this does seem to, I think in that context, we can understand this as a sort of a newer, fresher concern. And I think, you know, it, it it might be really obvious to Americans when something like a government shutdown happens, you know, like you might see a spike, particularly on that sort of question. Um, because clearly, there is this very sharp disagreement between the two parties, there's an inability to find common ground. But I think that's just more and more apparent just in every day, not even just in those sort of more special circumstances 
um, when there's you know a heightened governmental crisis of some kind. It's just like kind of a constant now. And so it's not that surprising to me that such a large percentage of people express concern about this. Yeah, I mean, just how concerned? So what percentage of Americans say that? How does it compare to other issues? And to what extent is there a gap in terms of partisanship? So overall, uh, 28% of Americans picked this as one issue they thought was one of the most important facing the country. Um, this was something they, they could pick up to three, basically, out of uh, 20 options that we gave them. Uh, so it ranked second in our first poll, as you mentioned, and then third uh, in the most recent one. So it's clearly something that really concerns people. Democrats were more likely to worry about it. And actually, if you looked at like likely voter numbers, Democrats were particularly more likely to, to worry about it. Uh, but you know, there was there was there was concern and worry about this among independents and Republicans as well. And I think one of the interesting things that is difficult to tease out, but you know, is something to keep in mind is uh, we saw in some of the open-ended questions that we asked that you might have Democrats specifically blaming Republicans or Donald Trump or or right-wing media or something like that, and then you'd have Republican respondents who might say something like, uh, you know, those socialists over there, uh, you know, Democrats, liberals. Um, and so I think what's interesting is that th there's clearly some blame, maybe some pointing of fingers that also is a part of this. Um, it was That's a little bit more difficult to tease out with some of the questions, but I think that's also something to keep in mind. Like if a Democrat's saying that like political extremism is a problem, they're probably thinking about Republicans and vice versa. Yeah. Sarah, we're asking sort of more complex or nuanced questions than just what issues do you think are important? And so in this context, what do Americans think about why we have political extremism, how it might be resolved? Um, you know, who are they blaming beyond just their, you know, opposite partisans? They blame the inability of the two parties to compromise. They blame political leaders. Um, there is a general perception. This was something that was expressed in the open-ended responses and then also in subsequent interviews we did with some of the survey respondents. And this idea that, you know, both political parties kind of have moved outside of the center. They don't represent, you know, me as a voter anymore. But I think as Jeffrey was kind of getting at in his response, you know, it's just we see the same thing with bipartisanship in the sense that Americans lament that it doesn't exist. But then when you really press them on like what bipartisanship looks like or what they want it to look like, it still looks like their party kind of having the optimal outcome and consensus and, you know, negotiating, working in their favor. And I think you're seeing some element of the political extremism happen in that regard as well, in the sense that you know, if you are a Democrat, you do largely think Republicans are to blame. If you are a Republican, you think Democrats are largely to blame. And I think that's kind of what makes it really challenging then to see the way out. And I don't think our survey necessarily, you know, helped illuminate what the way out of it is, is because so much of it is entrenched in um, hatred of the other party. Yeah, Gail, and I think to your point, if you ask them about sort of entities or groups of people or ideas or or I don't know, influences that, that are, are behind all this, you know, mostly they blame like political elites and big time wealthy donors and social media companies and the mainstream media uh, and not so much themselves. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we had a question where we basically were like, are, are political and social elites more responsible for political polarization or are how ordinary people think and behave? 
is that more been a bigger factor? And overwhelmingly, people blamed political and social elites, um, which uh, makes some sense. Um, we've we've seen like political science research on this. Basically, the idea of elites, sort of a top-down process of of political elites, sort of spreading polarization to the mass public, uh, is is uh, pretty pretty well uh, documented uh, at this point. So, Americans aren't wrong about that uh, in terms of sort of the the source of what's been driving it originally, um, but how it has spread to the to public at large. But I mean, I also think it's important not to let. Uh, you know, everyday people off the hook either. I mean, I think that, you know, people say... Yeah, there's evil want... people out there. <laughs> <laughs> there are, Galen, but that's not what I'm talking about. Um, no, I mean, people, you know, people say they want compromise. They say, you know, what was it in the poll? Um, 62% of Americans thought the U.S. should actively try to reduce political polarization, but people are still going out and voting in primaries for, you know, in many, if not most cases, um, the most extreme candidates. And, and you know, they, when kind of asked on a specific issue that might be important to them, um, they perhaps understandably don't want to compromise on that issue. And it's like, well, in, in general, I want to compromise, but not on this or this or this, because those are Wait. important. But Nathaniel, aren't you talking about the very small percentage of Americans that vote in primaries? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's kind of part of the issue, too, is that primary electorates aren't really necessarily representative. Um, I'm basically I'm, I'm saying why it's so difficult to, to get out of this problem, even though mm. a large majority of people seem to agree it's a problem. So in this sense, Americans them like, you know, this poll is not of primary voters. This poll is of American adults. And so is it possible that they have this sort of like broader wisdom and willing to willingness to compromise and generally see it like as elite versus the people in terms of where polarization is coming from, but that the people who are actually voting just disagree with them? Or is it not so cut and dry? Like these people are also delusional. Well, I think as we have written many times on the site, people are not necessarily consistent ideologically. And of course, the people who are most likely to say they are independent or something else are also the least politically engaged. The most politically engaged almost all identify as Democrat or Republican as a general rule. You know, they're just more likely to be partisan. Um, and so like if you're thinking about polarization sort of coming down from elites, it's like those most politically engaged people are the people who are most polarized um, as a result. But I don't think I think because of the sort of ideological mis mismatch of of independence, I'm not sure that like their greater wisdom would even if they all voted would would necessarily you know, solve all the problems or something, right? But I do think it's true to your point that it's it's those people and to Nathaniel's point that it's those most politically engaged people who are who've who are now very much polarizing things themselves at you know among the mass public at large. Right. I mean I think it's certainly true that a lot of politicians, certain politicians have, you know, incited the, you know, political polarization that we see and, and have whipped voters up into a frenzy, but also like, you know, it's it's become this vicious cycle where the voters are, are, you know, having been whipped up, aren't kind of taking the temperature down either. And they are continuing to to support, um, you know, the the more um, hardline elements of their parties. And actually, to your earlier point, Galen, I thought it was one thing I thought was interesting in, in the poll was that um, likely voters were more likely than Americans overall to think that polarization was a problem, which I think drives home the idea that 
it's it's not necessarily like like the people who who say polarization is a problem are really saying that like the other party's like you know unreasonableness extremeness is the problem yeah that's a good point nathaniel we should mention that if you line up all the issues uh, among all adults and then just among likely voters the biggest difference was was on the issue of political polarization like the the largest difference uh just m many more people who were likely voters and more politically engaged named that as an issue so this makes me curious about a hypothetical here so the first poll that we did with ipsos was largely conducted before the leaked dobbs opinion which showed a majority of the supreme court in favor of overturning roe v wade and only four percent of americans in that poll said that abortion was a top issue in this poll that grew to nine percent so you know, more than doubled, but ultimately 9% is not enormous. If we were to take an issue like that, which is deeply polarizing, and say, okay, you know, look at the Gallup polling. Gallup asks for all the different stages of a pregnancy, when should abortion be legal? When should it not be legal, et cetera? And there is a significant majority in favor for legal abortion in the first trimester, but that's the only trimester, right? It falls in the second and third to a minority of Americans. Do you think if someone were to propose like a national law saying, okay, Democrats, Republicans, you all like the elites of both parties are driving in the direction of legal abortion for all trimesters and no legal abortion whatsoever. We're going to give you the option of, you know, abortion is legal solely in the first trimester. Do you think Americans would go for that? I do. I just don't think there's any vehicle for making that happen uh, where that would transpire, I guess. You know, we don't have any system of national referendum in this country. And in terms of the campaigns on this, it's like, uh, you know, the Republican base is largely opposed to abortion in most cases. Although there are, to be clear, there in our poll, we found that uh, a fair number of Republicans would, would want abortion to be legal in cases of like rape or incest. A larger number than you than you'd expect. I think it was about half. But on the whole, it's uh, the campaigns here. It's like the Republicans would hold sort of a more extreme position than that. You know, legal legal in the first trimester, and Democrats would generally say, well, it should be legal. You know, at all times. And finding a way to get a middle ground on that, like legislatively, is is nigh impossible, um, of course. And uh, we don't have any vehicle for a, a national referendum on the issue where maybe that would be a consensus position that could pass. I mean, think of what we've seen play out right now with gun legislation in Congress. You know, we're supposed to get the text today. It does still generally reporting shows some type of compromise is going to happen. But, you know, Senator Cornyn, when he was in Texas over the weekend, was booed by um, fellow Republicans in the state and the legislature for his position in trying to find, you know, compromise with Democrats on some sensible gun laws, a, a lot of them around like red flags, right? So people with known um, mental issues would not be able to access uh, a gun and people were protesting any type of rolling back gun rights. And so I think to Jeffrey's point, there's not the mechanism in place for the law that you're describing, um, Galen, and for like the reality of that being passed into law. But then it's also even if that conversation were to happen within the confines of like how Congress is currently structured, it's hard not to see like some of the same kind of messaging problems that exist on both sides around something like abortion creeping into that um, out of the get go. 
Yeah, I I don't think that kind of policy would pass, you know, certainly not in Congress. And I don't think it would pass in a national referendum situation either, because I think people would retreat to their partisan corners and, and listen to elites, yes, but also not be willing to accept the significant um, concession of four Republicans allowing a good number of abortions and four Democrats uh, banning a good number of abortions. Yeah. And that, that point, that gets to the point of all, we've talked about this a lot recently too, of, of like issue polling and then why don't, you know, referenda match up with yeah, you know, referendum results go. at the state level match up. And it's like, well, cause they mount campaigns and people are pushed uh, by by campaigns mounted by you know, political parties and elites and candidates to to support you know their view and that will tend to shift people to their partisan corners as Nathaniel was saying. You know, one other thing that we did with this poll was ask partisans their perceptions of what opposite partisans believe. So you've mentioned this, Jeffrey, about sort of we asked Democrats. What do you think about Republicans' views on abortion in cases of, you know, rape, incest, or the life of the mother? But we asked about uh, a whole slate of kind of controversial issues. And it turned out, probably as expected, that people viewed opposite partisans as having more extreme views than they actually held. This is something I think we've known for a while. We've talked on this podcast about a poll where Republican respondents thought that some, like 20 plus, maybe 30% of Democrats were like gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender, which is like extremely uh, inaccurate. A wild number of Democrats thought that Republicans made over $100,000 a year or over a million dollars, you know, like just these caricatures of partisans become the reality in people's minds. Um, do we think that correcting for that, like, okay, so now we know you can see, um, people have an incorrect view of opposite partisans. Does correcting for that, what does that do? Does that decrease polarization? Does that change things? I think in theory it, it could only in the sense that I think one of the, one of the factors in, in political polarization is the inability to sort of relate or access people who have differing views from you. And that's either through like your choices in media consumption. So you only listen to media that largely reflects your perspectives. Most of your friends have one, you know, partisan viewpoint, uh, for the most part, you know, you only hang out with, with people who, who have a certain viewpoint. Um, you live in a community. We know from partisan sorting and communities that, you know, increasingly, uh, uh, Certain areas are much more likely to be Republican or Democratic, and the people in those places either move there because they want to live around people who are like-minded, or they begin to take on the views of the people who live around them. You know, with that in mind, it's like if if that sort of partisan sorting is going on, it seems to me that a way to sort of push back on some of the the negative polarization, the idea that you really don't like the other party, is to maybe have a more accurate view of what the other party looks like. So I think in theory this could work, but I am I I don't want to say that like you know it's going to be some salve or something. Um, if we could somehow get people to have a, a better understanding of what what each political party looks like, um, but I do think that there is something to it based on what we know about what's going on in terms of how people interact with people or you know don't interact with people who um, have differing views from them. We'll leave things there for our Ipsos collaboration, but of course we're going to be tracking the issues as we get closer to the midterms. As I mentioned, 
crime and gun violence increased to the second most important issue for Americans in the latest polling. And I know we're going to be digging into that, into upcoming polling as well. So we'll have a chance to talk about it. Before we go, I did mention that we're not going to have a reaction podcast this week because it's a shorter week with Monday off. But folks will still be able to follow along on election night on the live blog Tuesday night, and they'll be able to sort of read about it after the fact. We mentioned some primaries in Virginia. Are there any other just key elections we want to shout out that people should have their eyes on before we um, call it a day? Yeah, we have a few runoffs in Alabama and Georgia that are interesting, I think, namely the Alabama Senate race. This is between Katie Britt and Mo Brooks. Brooks, of course, is the guy who got Trump's endorsement, then lost it because he wasn't doing very well. Trump has now actually turned around and endorsed Katie Britt in the runoff, uh, which is interesting because Britt is kind of seen as the more establishment pragmatic person. She used to work for the retiring Senator Richard Shelby, who is, you know, fairly is at least kind of in the Senate to be a statesman and, you know, like come to consensus as opposed to someone like Mo Brooks, who is more of a, a bomb thrower. But um, Britt has really kind of embraced her inner Trump and, and has been rewarded for that with Trump's endorsement. So it'll be interesting to see um, what kind of center she is if she gets elected, which it looks like she will. In addition, there are some interesting House runoffs. I don't think we need to get into them here, but um, some interesting threads there are Trump has made endorsements in a couple of those. And in a couple of those, his, um, his endorsed candidate is the underdog. So it'll be interesting to see if he chalks up a couple of losses there. Um, and then you also have Republicans um, who have the chance to nominate a couple of black candidates as well, including in one predominantly black district that actually might be competitive this year. Um, so for a party that obviously has struggled to appeal to African-American voters that has, um, I believe, only two um, black Republicans in the entire House right now, um, you know, the, the potential to dramatically increase that number, at least in percentage terms, uh, is there today. All right. Well, let's leave it there for today. Thank you, Sarah, Nathaniel, and Jeff. Thanks, Galen. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Galen. My name is Galen Drew. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director. And Emily Vineski is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon.